0: Well, welcome this morning. Glad you're here. I'm going to look at a passage in 1 John chapter 3 this morning that I had a chance to teach at our Creed camp about half a dozen years ago and then got to teach uh, here at the church. So if you grew up in Creed, you might remember some of this and you'll have a chance to connect some of the stories that you will remember back to the text that they're supposed to illuminate. So this is uh, honestly uh, an extraordinarily challenging passage to sort out, and, and to live. And so I'd like to pray for us along those lines as we open up to First John chapter 3. Pray with me, please. Good, good Father, be merciful to us now. I pray that the heart of your word would come to our hearts in such a way that we would receive it. Lord, guard our minds from drifting away to lesser things than what is to be put before us. Help us not to explain it away or wish it away on someone else, but to receive it as your very loving care for us. Lord, this is the work of your Spirit whom we welcome now. Come, Spirit of God, and fill us so that we might receive the word rightly and carry it with us from this room. We pray in Christ's great name. Amen. So, this morning, I'm going to share with you a secret. Um, It's just three words, and you can write it down if you want, but it is just three words. Are you ready? Here's the secret God loves you. God loves you. Some of you are probably thinking, really? That's no secret. I, I knew that. It's, uh, it's on bumper stickers and billboards and T-shirts and that crazy guy who has his face painted holding up the sign on the end zone that has John 3.16 on it. For God so loved the world. That's no secret. I already knew that. I was all hoping for a secret. Well, When I say secret... I don't mean something that you don't know, um, like some secret ingredient or a secret handshake or some juicy unknown fact about Justin Bieber. Um, When I say that I came to share with you a secret, I mean the key. You know, if you've ever played baseball or if you've ever played the game of golf, then you know that the secret to hitting the ball is seeing the ball. You ha- As they say, you have to keep your head on the ball. Um, that's not some revolutionary new secret idea that Mookie Betts or Tiger Woods doesn't know. Um, it's a key that Mookie, who leads the major leagues in hitting, and Tiger, who's on the verge of a comeback, right, um, They definitely know that. It's not top secret information, but it's information that is the key to hitting the ball. So the idea that God loves you, that you are deeply loved by God. It's not some little known new idea. Um, It's not some hot new theological teaching, but it is the key to the Christian life really to all of life, to the extent that you understand and you you grasp and believe and abide in the truth that you are loved by God, that changes everything. To grasp what it means to be loved by God changes everything. You know, I came to know Jesus in part through the ministry of Billy Graham uh, at the age of 17 um, when I went to see a movie that uh, featured him and that his production company put out. And perhaps because of his role in my story, there's no one I would rather listen to um, proclaim the love of God for me than Billy Graham. And so what I'd like to do this morning, I want to show you a short video that has voiceovers of, of Billy Graham and his son Franklin doing that very thing, declaring the love of God for us. So just watch this video with me.
1: is jealous for me love's like a hurricane i am a tree bending me away to his wind and mercy god loves you and he loves you with a love that you don't even know anything about because there is no human love comparable to divine love god loves you he wants to forgive you he wants to have fellowship with you it doesn't make any difference how far you tried to run from God. He loves you. His eye is on you. He sees you. God created us in His image, and you as a person are important to God. The Bible says that God has the hairs of your head numbered. Every moment of your life is watched by God. is listening and god loves you he's your friend he'll put his arm around you and he understands and he answers and he's sympathetic to your problem god loves you and the bible says that god sent his son from heaven to this earth for you jesus christ came to this earth to take your sins upon a cross and he would have died had you been the only person in the whole world. He loves you. Don't ever forget he loves, 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 loves you. Jesus Christ was nailed to that cross. He did that for you. That's how much he loves us. The Bible says, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. God loves you. And God has
0: a plan for your life. loves 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 you and when you buy that okay when you really believe it when you welcome that when you receive it by faith that changes everything it changes your destiny for eternity it changes the way you love others And as we'll see today, it changes the way that you deal with temptation and sin. Changes everything. There's a sense in which it's not not just a secret, it's the secret. And this is the focus of what John is trying to tell us in the third chapter, and honestly the next chapter, of the the book of 1 John. Listen to how chapter 3 starts. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called children of God. And so we are. I like the way the New International Version renders this verse. Listen to it. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us. That we should be called children of God. I love the imagery that God has lavished on us. His love on us. It's like, like lavishing chocolate on a Sunday, right? He has lavished His love on us. It's not dripped. It's not drizzled. It is poured on. It is lavished on. Like one of those chocolate fountains, right? Not just any chocolate fountain. Like a chocolate waterfall, right? That's what we're talking about. There's one. 400 kilograms of chocolate every three minutes. That's, do the math, 661 pounds of chocolate every three minutes. Lavished. That's lavish. That's poured out. That's like chocolate heaven, right? It's this endless pouring of tons of chocolate. That's lavish. God lavished His love on you as a gift, as a gift. When I turned 16, my dad bought me a car. It was a 1968 Mercury Montego. My car did not look like that. <laughs> OK? It looked more like this on a good day. That, that was, it was green with a white vinyl top, um, kind of pea green with a white vinyl top. Um, But my old 1968 Mercury Montego was to me a lavish gift of love. You know, it didn't didn't look like it, but it was to me. I was just glad to have something, anything to drive. Um, See, but when we think about lavish from God, We're not thinking about a used Mercury. We're thinking about the Bugatti Veyron. Okay, this is a $2.3 million sports car that has a top speed of 255 mile an hour. To a 16-year-old boy, that's lavish. That's what the lavish love of God looks like, right? When we talk lavish on God's scale, we're not talking Mercury. We're talking Bugatti. Because one of the ways we measure lavishness is by cost, right? A lavish gift is is a a costly gift. And on that basis, um, the mercury is not so lavish. The Bugatti, that's pretty lavish. The love of God is lavished on us, John says. At great cost, far greater cost than the mercury or even the Bugatti, The life of God's one and only Son, innocent, yet offered up for your sin and mine amidst great suffering. Jesus was humiliated. They mocked him. They spat upon him. They pressed that crown of thorns into his brow They made him carry his own cross and they nailed him to it because of the secret. God's love for you. Jesus' death is the great tangible demonstration of the lavish love of God even for the likes of us. And the New Testament puts it this way. It's real familiar, so listen carefully to it. For while we were still weak, At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. That's us. For one person, one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is lavish love. Poured out. On the likes of us. And what that lavish love accomplished for us is that it made us God's children, right? In verse one, how great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. We who trust and follow Jesus, we're God's children. If you're gonna put that into a word, what this lavish love accomplishes, it could be the word adoption. Ephesians 1 says that in love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God's love drove him to adopt us when we were not very adoptable, to choose us when we were not choosable at all, the scriptures say. My favorite stories that illustrates this is told by Lee Strobel. He says, shortly after the Korean War, a Korean woman had an affair with an American soldier and she got pregnant He went back to the United States, and she never saw him again. She gave birth to a little girl, and this little girl looked different than the other Korean children. She had light-colored, curly hair. And in that culture, children of mixed race were ostracized by the community. In fact, many women would kill their children because they didn't want them to face such rejection. But this woman didn't do that. She tried to raise her little girl as best she could, and for seven years she tried to do that until the rejection was too much, and she did something that probably nobody in this room could imagine ever doing. She abandoned her little girl to the streets. And the little girl was ruthlessly taunted by people. He says they called her the ugliest name in the Korean language, Tuki, means alien devil. It didn't take long for this little girl to draw conclusions about herself based on the way people treated her. And for two years, she lived in the streets until finally she made her way to an orphanage. And one day, word came that a couple from America was coming to adopt a little boy, and all the children in the orphanage got excited because at least one little boy was going to have hope, and he was going to have a family. And so this little girl spent the day cleaning up the little boys and giving them baths and combing their hair and wondering which one would be adopted by the American couple. The next day, the couple came, And this is what the girl recalled. It was like Goliath had come back to life. I saw the man with his huge hands lift up each and every baby, and I knew he loved every one of them as if they were his own. I saw tears running down his face, and I knew if they could, they would have taken the whole lot home with them. He saw me out of the corner of his eye. She says, now, let me tell you, I was nine years old, but I didn't even weigh 30 pounds. I was a scrawny thing. I had worms in my body and lice in my hair. I had boils all over me. I was full of scars. I was not a pretty sight, but the man came over to me and he began rattling away something in English and I looked up at him and then he took his huge hand and laid it on my face. What was he saying? He was saying, I want this child. This is the child for me. So when we on the inside were scrawny and full of lice in our dark souls and our dark hearts God loved us then. And he chose us in love is the way the Bible puts it. To be his children. That love The love that caused that adoption is the secret. It's the key. We now belong to him. He is now our father and we are his children. We are lavishly loved by God and that love, when we grasp it and we abide in it, it changes everything. Beloved, We are God's children now, and what we shall be has not yet appeared, John writes. But we know that when he appears, when Jesus appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he, as Jesus is pure. So again, he says, we are the beloved of God. And again, he says that we are God's children now. This lavish love that God loves us with changes our future. When Jesus returns, when he appears, we will see him and we will be changed. The love of God for us changes our future and it changes us. It says, we shall be like him. We'll be changed by the love God has for us. And by meeting face to face the one who loves us so lavishly. When we meet face to face with the one who bore the cross for us. Now at the forefront of what John has in mind when he speaks of our being changed. Is that we will be without sin. Just like Jesus. No more anger, no more worry, no more fear, no more lust, no more selfishness, only love. We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will see the one who loves us so, and all those lesser, darker things will fall away. And now, according to verse 3, the change has already begun. For those of us who embrace the love of God, the love God has for us, because everyone who thus hopes in Him, that hopes to see Jesus one day, when He returns, purifies Himself now, the implication is, as Jesus is pure. See, as we hope in that encounter with the One who loves us on that day, the day when Jesus returns for us, we purify ourselves from sin now in anticipation of it. The love God has for us in Jesus, the hope of seeing Jesus one day, causes us to choose against sin, which makes sense, right? Doesn't it make sense? I mean, imagine that you're engaged to the girl or the guy of your dreams, and you love them, and they are crazy about you, okay? And he or she has gone away for a a trip for a long time, and they're about to come back. Now, your fiancé hates it when you eat onions. They hate it. They don't want to be in the room with you when you have onions on your breath. It's just a thing. So, on the day they come back, person that loves you and you're crazy about are you gonna have onions on that burger no no onions breath mints you're not gonna have onions on the day that your beloved returns when you see them after this absence In like manner, when we think of Jesus' return, and when we get to see him, just the anticipation of seeing Jesus purifies us from our sin, from the things that he hates. It seems like we should think more about Jesus coming back, shouldn't we? This is what John is writing about in the next few verses. It's what's been called the expulsive power of a greater affection. The love of God drives out our appetite for sin. And at this point, I need to stop and say that this is an extremely troublesome passage to sort out. John Stott, in his very helpful commentary on this passage, trots out no less than seven different interpretations of what I'm about to take you through. And I find out that uh, Luther does not agree with Augustine, and Merkel does not agree with Cruz, and... (laughs) Nobody agrees. Um, Even our Bible translations struggle with how to translate the verses that we're about to to walk through. Here's here's an example from verse 6 of very significant differences in the translations. The ESV, which is what we normally use here, a wonderful Bible translation in English, says, No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning, and no one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Now the HCSB, which is another wonderful Bible translation that I often read. It's delightful. They translate it differently. They said, everyone who remains in him does not sin. Everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. And at first reading that, doesn't sound like a big difference, but are they talking about habitual ongoing sin or are they talking about any sin? You notice the difference? It's kind of a big difference that if you sin at all, you don't know Jesus Well, didn't the room just get really small in terms of people who know Jesus, if if that's what it means? So you can see the struggle that scholars and people far smarter than I have with this passage. Is the reference to habitual sin, or is it to any sin at all? Both of these translations are perfectly acceptable. Both bring out certain elements of what John is trying to do. Because on the one hand, he is warning them against teachers who diminish sin... And say that you can be righteous before God, even when you don't live a righteous life. That's why he said back in verse 29 of chapter 2, right before our passage began, If you know that Jesus is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. In other words, the righteousness that comes from Jesus is going to affect your behavior. And they were saying it didn't. John is concerned. He wants us, first of all, to identify false teachers by their lifestyle. He's plainly saying that when you watch their life, they are not true Christians, no matter what they say. You can tell by the way they live. They don't deal with their sin as we do. They don't confess it and forsake it with sorrow. Instead, they dismiss it, even going so far as to say that they have no sin. We saw this in chapter 1. They said... By implication, we have no sin, Um, and they live in disobedience to the teaching of Jesus. Yet claim that that's irrelevant. That's not a big deal. Okay, he's writing against that teaching that's being pressed upon the church, but he also wants to call the church away from that teaching. To a different kind of life, so away from a life that tolerates or excuses or even welcomes sin to one that hates sin for the love of God, okay? And so what I'm going to do today, I'm going to use that different translation, the HCSB, because it's so shocking, and I want, I want us to see the radical dichotomy that he's drawing between a life of sin and a life that, that loves God. He is saying, in the strongest of terms, that they don't go together, folks. Okay? They don't coexist. They can't. And so, um, you'll have a different translation in your lap, probably, than I'm reading today on the screen from time to time. So, starting in verse 4. He says, everyone who commits sin also breaks the law. Sin is breaking of law. You know that Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. Everyone who remains in Jesus does not sin. And everyone who sins has not seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. The one, who is right, the one who does what is right is righteous, just as Jesus is righteous. So let me point out several things uh, as we walk through these, these verses, especially in light of the translation I've chosen to use here today. First of all, John is treating them like Christians, right? Didn't he just say that they are, verse 1, children of God. And again, if they didn't get it in verse 2, beloved, we are God's children. So let's be clear. He's writing to Christians. He's not trying to talk them out of it, okay? That's not his objective. He is writing to Christians, and John does not expect them to be totally without sin, You remember, famously back in chapter 1, what does John say? If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. So, he's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians who sin. I think he's writing to us, okay? Those those two things are very, very important as we go through this. So he is concerned here, warning them that a life that welcomes sin, that accepts it and rationalizes it, excuses it is a mark of unbelief, not true faith, okay? Not just any little sin, but how we deal with that sin seems to be really critical, John is primarily concerned to warn the church, the believers, against false teaching of some teachers who'd gone out from them. And these teachers thought sin was of little or no consequence. Or they just dismissed it completely and said that they had not done any at all. And he warns them in verse 7, Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. Don't let anyone deceive you. The false teachers were trying to lure the church into this false view of the significance of sin. okay, That's what's going on. And John's concerned that they would be able to identify them by their lifestyles and that they would not be led into sin by these false teachers who minimize the impact of sin. And that's why, in part, I think his statements are so incredibly strong here. He's countering false teachers he's in a debate he's in an argument for the life and soul of the church and john wants to warn them don't have any tolerance for sin none it's never okay to sin never to sin he say is a violation of the love of god for them and i love to think about this this way you remember uh, the incredibles He just came out with a second movie, I think. Um, There they are. And the Incredibles, you remember the son, Dash, and as his name indicates, he was remarkably, remarkably fast. And there's a scene uh, that involves him and the principal. Uh, Watch it. This will bring it back to memory if you've seen the movie. If not, I think you pick it up. I appreciate you coming down here, Mrs. Park.
1: What's this about? Has Dash done something wrong? Uh, he's a disruptive influence, and he openly mocks me in front of the class. He says. Look, I know it's you. He puts thumbtacks on my stool. You saw him do this? Well... Not really... No. Actually not. Oh. Then how do you know it was him? I hit a camera. Yeah, and this time I got him. (laughs) See? You see? Well, you don't see it? He moves right there! Wait, wait! Right there! Right as I'm sitting down! I don't know. I don't know how he does it. But but, but there's no tack on my stool before he moves, and after he moves, there's a tack! Coincidence? I think not! Uh, Bernie... Don't Bernie me! This little rat is guilty!
0: You and your son can go now, Mrs. Parr. I'm sorry for the trouble. Okay. You're
1: letting him go again? He's guilty. You can see it on his smug little face. Guilty, I say guilty, guilty, guilty.
0: So think of your least favorite teacher that you've ever had when you were in school. Worst teacher. Now, if you were Dash for just one day, For just one class period, would you do it? (laughs) It's pretty tempting, isn't it? Uh, now, Now, let's change the frame of reference. Think of your most favorite teacher, the best teacher you've ever had. And if you were Dash, just for one day, just for one period, would you do it? You know, um, the difference between those two is what we could call the restraining power of love. Okay? You care about your favorite teacher, and chances are you care about them because they cared about you first. See, when we grasp and welcome and receive by faith the depth of love of God for us, sin begins to become unthinkable. Begins to become impossible. And should we fall into it, we are deeply grieved and confess it as John taught us back in those verses in chapter 1. See, in in verse 5 we just read, you know that Jesus was revealed so that he might take away sins and there is no sin in Jesus. See, sin is a violation of the whole life work of Jesus. When every time we bite on sin, we are going against what Jesus came to live and do on this earth, which is to take away sin. Karen Jobes writes in her commentary, the statement that there is no sin in Jesus Christ says more than that Jesus never committed a sin during his life on earth. It says that one cannot remain in him in sin for there is no sin in Jesus. John is building a case against the person who wishes to be known as a Christian and yet who defends those practices and attitudes that God has defined as sin. To do such a thing is to be lawless and reject God's authority. And we could add, it is to reject his love. John is urging them to remember how lavishly God has loved them and not to give themselves to sin at all. It's a violation of the lavish love of God. Verse 8. He goes on even stronger language. The one who commits sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The son of God has revealed was revealed for this purpose. To destroy the devil's works. Everyone who has been born of God does not sin because his seed remains in him. He is not able to sin because he's been born of God. This is how God's children and the devil's children are made evident. Whoever does not do what is right is not of God, especially the one who does not love his brother. Now again, remember, he's writing to Christians, and he knows that Christians sin. That's not what he's dealing with. But he is telling us that when we sin, we are going against the very reason Jesus came and died. Twice John says it. Verse 5 he says that Jesus came to take away sin. And here he says he came to destroy the devil's works. And when we buy sin, we are embracing that which Jesus came to give his life against. How could we do that to someone who loves us so lavishly? When we sin, we are opposing the good work of Jesus, his life's work, the reason that he came, lived, and died. And even more, sin not only puts us at odds with the love of God and Jesus' work on the cross, but he says it aligns us with the devil's work. John is really using bold language here, isn't he? It's because he has those false teachers in view And to embrace sin like they did is impossible for someone who knows the love of God. They cannot be Christians, he's saying. But he's also concerned that the church, that we would hear the starkness of the choice that is before us. Between sin and the love of God for us. And so I think John here is using some pastoral hyperbole. Um, I think he's writing here more like a pastor than he is like an academician. Um, For instance, my freshman football team in high school, which was my last glorious year of football, my freshman year, we were undefeated. That team would go on after I resigned to become state champions. They're totally unrelated, I'm sure. Um, (laughs) But our freshman year, we were undefeated, but we started the season oh- 0, and 3. Think about that. No wins, no losses, 3 ties. And so our coaches, I remember this, before our uh, fourth game, they told us in no uncertain t- terms that we could win or we could lose, but we could not tie. <laughs> we could not tie. That simply was not an option. And this was back in the day when coaches didn't tell you this. They slammed you up against the bus and told you these kind of things. Um, See, John is arguing with that kind of intensity here. You cannot sin. You must not sin, not at all. It's a violation of what it means to be born of God, to be a child of God, to be one who has been lovingly adopted, of God, and again, he has his crosshairs on those who rather than confess and grieve their sin, they cherish it, they welcome it, they justify it, they explain it away like the false teachers did in their day. But John also has the church in mind, he has you and me in mind, true followers of Jesus, he doesn't want us to fall in with those who say it's okay to sin, that it's no big deal. And these voices, deceiving voices, are just as common today as they were in John's day. Many times it's kind of a matter of renaming things. I ran across an article by Ed Rowell. He says, in 1977 there was a fish merchant named Lee Lance who traveled to Chile and he discovered something called the toothfish a species the locals deemed too oily to eat. And 30 years in a name, chain, name change later, Chilean sea bass is so popular amongst American palates that it's almost on the verge of extinction. After Canadians developed an oil from the rapeseed plant, they still had to deal with the name. So in 1988, the FDA approved a name change to canola oil, and, and sales shot up. Uh, when the California Prune Board, evidently it really exists, the California Prune Board realized that the words prune and laxative were inextricably linked, they switched to dried plums in the year 2000. And people bought it and, in a documented focus group, preferred the taste of dried plums to prunes. <laughs> in the 1960s, Frieda Kaplan, an American produce importer, changed the name of the Chinese gooseberry to the kiwi fruit after New Zealand's national bird, which is also round, brown, and fuzzy. Popularity, popularity spiked. And even though the bony fish, known as the dolphin fish, was unrelated to the mammal of the same name, diners still balked at ordering it. So in the mid-1980s, restaurants started using its Hawaiian name, Mahi Mahi. And all thoughts of Flipper were forgotten. So then he says something really significant, he says, people have a natural bent towards renaming something to make it more palatable. Such an act of renaming, especially in the examples I just mentioned, he says, are relatively harmless. But what about the renaming we do on a more personal level? That can get pretty dangerous pretty fast. He says it leads to self-denial, a lack of self-awareness. He says, for example, some of us have a hard time saying, I'm angry. We think it's more acceptable to say, I'm not angry, I'm just frustrated. Or, I'm not angry, I'm just hurt. The problem, he says, is you can change the name however many times you like. It still doesn't change what it really is. And you can fool as many people as you like, but you still know the truth deep down. The worst of it all is that it means you'll never deal with what you need to deal with in your life. And so, someone leaves their spouse and they say that, to me that it's not that big of a deal. That it happens all the time these days and God still blesses divorced people. So, someone gets involved in a lesbian affair, and they say, but it's a loving, monogamous relationship, and that's all that matters. Someone is a racist, and they justify it, and they defend it. It's part of their heritage. And Isaiah says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now if that's you, if you justify rather than confess your sin, if you are saying yes to the ways of the devil and no to the love of God for you, you are saying no to the costly, deep, lavish, undeserved, life-giving love of God for you. John shocks us and he says that we are aligning ourselves with the devil himself. The devil himself. Again, if you sin, it doesn't mean that you cannot or are not saved. If you make a bad choice of one kind or another, it doesn't mean that you are not or cannot be saved. You don't have to be perfect. That's not John's point. Remember, John is doing two things here. He's pointing out the false faith of the false teachers, and at the same time, he's calling the church to a life given over to the love of God, not to sin. He's telling us that a life that welcomes sin is not a life marked by faith. Do you welcome sin? He wants to protect you from falling into the devil's snare, from saying that sin is no big deal. Because to welcome sin is a huge deal. It's an act of rejection of the God who loves you, to Jesus who suffered and died for you. It's not a tack on your favorite teacher's chair. It's a nail in the cross of your Savior. So the secret is very simple. It's just three words. God loves you. God loves you. And embracing the love of God changes everything. We become his children adopted in love at great cost. And that changes us as we hope that we will see him soon. The love of God purifies us. It causes us to say no to sin in anticipation of seeing Jesus. Now, is that what you mean when you say to someone, yeah, I'm a Christian. I'm a a Christian. Do you mean that you have come to grips with how lavish God's love is for you. I mean, like chocolate waterfall kind of lavish, right? Million-dollar Bugatti kind of lavish. The very Son of God stretching out His bloody arms on a cross to bear your sins kind of lavish. Do you mean that you, by faith, have acknowledged that while you were yet a sinner, wholly undeserving of it, God loved you lavishly and made you his child? Is that what you mean? Have you embraced that? Are you abiding in it in such a way that it's changing you, that it's making sin increasingly impossible for you to do? Because you love God. Because he's loved you so. Some of you have let lesser loves steal your heart. And they have become sin for you. You claim to love God, but you are coddling sin. You are cherishing it. You are dismissing it and saying it's really not that big a deal. And so today you have a chance to repent and return to the love of God for you. The lavish love of God. So that your faith is centrally an embracing and a celebrating of the fact that God loves you. That you are adopted into God's family as his beloved child. And sin has less and less hold on you until he comes and it all, it all falls away. Because you will see Jesus face to face. And that will be enough. Some of you have never heard being a Christian described this way before. It's always been about being good. And it is. And it's been about believing the right things. And it is. But it's never been about being loved by God like this, lavishly, so that you are adopted into God's family as his beloved child, and it's very much about this. That's the secret, right? Some of you have never received the love of God for you, and you can do that today before you walk out of this room. You can bow your head, and you can throw yourself on the mercy of God and confess your sins and welcome the love of God that's greater than your sin. You can do it. It's... It can be done right here before you leave. And I pray that you will come to grips for the first time what it means that God loves you. Because that's the secret. God loves you. So let's pray together. Lord, have mercy on us. How could the most wonderful news in the world not be treasured by us? How could we forsake it for all these little pleasures and things that we think will satisfy us? It's crazy. It's because it's sin. And so, Lord, we confess our sins to you now. We're, We're bowed before you. Things are coming to mind, Lord we confess those as sin. We say they are sin and we are so, so sorry. Hear our prayers now. And we cling to Jesus. He is our Savior. He is our only hope. What a great hope that we would see him face to face, the one who took the cross for us, the one who bore our sins, the one who is perfect, the one who is love incarnate. We'll get to see him And so, Lord, protect us now, shield us now by your own love for us from the snare of sin that's set as we walk outside of this room back into the world. Help us to bear the love of God in us and with us Uh, to everyone we meet. We ask this all in his great name, Jesus. Amen. If you'll stand, let's worship Jesus as we close.